Uh, February greetings. Welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thank you very much for coming out tonight for our book talk. Uh, and our first lecture of the spring semester with Theodore S. Gonzalez, Saisha Grayson, and Grace Yasamura on their recently published books, Smithsonian Asian Pacific American History, Art, and Culture in 101 Objects. Uh, Theo has spoken previously at the Institute before uh, on uh, Kulintang Kultura, uh, Danongan Kalanduyan, and Gang Music of the Philippine Diaspora, and also on the history of Peridon Records. And he's also the author of the article, Joe Patan, on Heavy Rotation, Studying the Repertoire of a Mixed-Race Composer. Composter. Uh, on your seats is a free issue of CUNY Forum, Volume 4, in which that article appears. Um, a late holiday gift for all of you for attending. Uh, those of you at home, too bad. Uh, some, some logistics before we begin. Uh, tonight's talk is being recorded. The video and podcast will be available late Monday afternoon for viewers at home. If you have a question after the presentation, please type it into the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom menu, and we'll read them aloud to our speakers. Uh, Theodore S. Gonzalez is curator of the Asian Pacific American History in the Division of Culture and the Arts at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Uh, his areas of responsibility include the research, collection, and exhibition of APA histories and the performing arts. Uh, he's previously served as director of Smithsonian's Asian Pacific American Center. Uh, he's a Fulbright scholar with extensive teaching experience in the U.S., in the U.S., Spain, and the Philippines. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez has also been awarded senior fellowships at the Smithsonian Institution, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and the Library of Congress. Uh, he was appointed to the Organization of American Historians' uh, Distinguished Lectureship Program and is currently a member of the Board of Directors of the Asian Council of Learned Societies. You're also a past president of the Association of Asian American Studies as well. <laughs> Left that out. But And then Saisha Grayson is curator, writer, and art historian focused on the intersections of contemporary art, performance, film, video, and cultural activism. In 2008, she became curator of time-based media at the Smithsonian's uh, American Art Museum, where she spearheads research, exhibitions, and acquisitions related to this aspect of the collection. Uh, Grayson's recent projects include the pop-up exhibition Pride at SAAM, uh, Carrie Mae Weems, uh, Looking Forward, Looking Back, and the group exhibition Musical Thinking, New Video Art and Sonic Strategies. Uh, from 2011 to 2016, she was the first assistant curator at the Brooklyn Museum's Elizabeth A. Sackler Center of Feminist Art, where she served as organizing curator of the Wang Getchi Matu, <laughs> A Fantastic Journey, uh, curator of Acrid Pop Prop, as well as originating curator of the site-specific exhibition Chitra Ganesh, Eyes of Time. Uh, Grayson received her doctorate from the CUNY Graduate Center, which is not far from here. <laughs> <laughs> and we have uh, Grace Yasamura. She, her, is an assistant uh, curator of the Smithsonian Art Museum, where she is co-curating an exhibition, The Shape of Power, Stories of Race and American Sculpture, which opens 
fall 2024 still still on time for that date yes, okay. November. okay november 2024 uh, if you're in dc please check that out prior to the smithsonian she served as a project manager for contemporary monuments to the slave past a digital archive that investigates how we visualize interpret and engage the histories of enslavement through contemporary monuments created for public spaces and she earned her phd in art history and archaeology from the university of maryland where she completed a dissertation that considered entangled histories of race, labor, and citizenship in the New Deal post office murals. And with that, please welcome Theodore S. Gonzalez, Aisha Grayson, and Grace Yasambora. Thanks to Anthony Wong um, and to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute at CUNY for the opportunity to be with you today. My name is Theodore S. Gonzalez, and I'm joined by Grace Yasamora and Saisha Grayson from the Smithsonian American Art Museum. They contributed to the book that I edited titled Smithsonian Asian Pacific American History, Art, and Culture in 101 Objects, which was released in November of last year. One of our senior curators at the Smithsonian, Richard Curran, authored a book in 2018 titled The Smithsonian's History of America in 101 Objects. Richard served as my first consultant for this project, and I figured if I was going to steal his idea that he should hear it directly from me. He says he was flattered. Uh, he acknowledged that he actually borrowed the idea from a curator at the British Museum, Neil McGregor's A History of the World in 100 Objects. As with every project at the Smithsonian, we started with a spreadsheet. And here, we started with a general inventory of artifacts that pertain to Asian Pacific American histories throughout the Smithsonian. At this point, you should know that there's not one Smithsonian, but several, 21 museums. Two of the most recent are the American Women's History and the National Museum of the American Latino. There are nine research centers, and there's one national zoo. Our initial survey involved 1,200 objects spanning both centuries and locations. But I think the key feature of this work is not only the objects, but also the interpretation. The objects generally have no intrinsic meaning without an intellectual framing, and for that we all have a huge debt to, um, that we owe to the scholarship that's anchored in Asian American ethnic studies and Pacific Island studies. So this is important because without a proper intellectual framing, what you have is an ad hoc approach to the research collection and exhibition of APA stories, stories that are about rather than by persons coming from those communities. Just as the Smithsonian cannot imagine telling stories about Native people, African Americans, and Latinos without an intellectual framing rooted in social movements and community engagement, the Smithsonian must also engage APA history, art, and culture with similar care and discipline. So next I'll talk about some of the features of the book, and they include the following. We have a foreword by noted historian Erica Lee, uh, and Dr. Lee reflected on this Hmong story cloth that hangs in her office. We also have from Secretary Lonnie G. Bunch III, uh, who served as the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a note of introduction as well. And he highlights the overall work that the Smithsonian has done uh, as an institution that has uh, the responsibility to educate all Americans by representing all of American history in its vast collection. I had a chance to work with 19 contributors, curators, and collections managers from a dozen Smithsonian units to create 101 entries in the book. For the most part, each entry has three elements. An image of the object that is in our collections, a secondary image for some context, and a description of about 500 to 1,000 words of that object. 
from the beginning, I was also mindful of how the book could be used by teachers throughout the country. Here we have a Chicago teacher by the name of Zach Schroeder, who's teaching a lesson about Asian American labor from California. Only a handful of states in the nation have mandated the teaching of Asian American history. They are New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Florida. Uh, they have all passed legislation to mandate the topic in K-12 schools. Illinois became the first in the nation to mandate AAPI instruction. We wanted to be mindful of how teachers could use the book in their coursework. So we also created resources like a detailed timeline of Asian American and Pacific Islander histories, as well as a set of recommended reading and a well-researched bibliography. Our curatorial team narrowed an initial number of 1,200 objects down to 101 entries. We cheated a bit since some of those entries have a few objects. But more importantly, as the project directors, uh, as, as the project's editor, I, I steered us to consider grouping the objects into keywords or themes rather than using a strict chronology. The 11 chapters of the book are here, and this is what the inside of my brain looked like for about <laughs> 18 months or so. Um, the result is a book that tells some predictable stories, but you'll find in here stories that keep us rooted in solidarity and struggle. In fact, the very use of the term Asian American is not simply a census category. That is the name that young activists gave themselves during a time in world history when young people were giving themselves all kinds of names, whether it be Latino or Chicano or Black or African American, Native or American Indian indigenous and Pacific Islander. Many separate identities, yes, but also multiple social movements that identified with each other's struggles. So we'll find those struggles embedded throughout the stories. In this next section, I'd like to briefly go over some local stories, some stories that pertain directly to New York-based experiences that are found throughout the book. And by my count, I was pleasantly surprised to see about 15 such stories. And here tonight in the audience, we have the graphic designer and artist, uh, Lucille Tenazas. Her poster for a 1993 play titled Peregrinación is part of the collection at the Cooper Hewitt. And there's no surprise here that a number of the visual artists featured in APA 101 have strong ties to New York City, including Isamu Noguchi, Yayoi Kusuma, Zarina, Shirin Neshat, Sen Kwang Chi, Shazia Sikandar, Henry Sugimoto, and Yasuo Kuniyoshi. I'd like to highlight here just a few more of these New York stories, including one focused on Hari Govind Govil, who created the patent for a font that would be used in a printing machine in 1937. This would allow for the spread of literacy efforts through publication in what represented at the time one-sixth of the world's population. In the, near, in the early 1920s, Govil moved to New York City to establish the India Society of America. He was a strong advocate for India's independence from Britain. He maintained a correspondence with Mohandas Gandhi and organized with members of the original NAACP, among others, for holding events and developing the public's knowledge about nationalism in his home country. We have in the collection as well a trunk that was filled by Enxing Li. She filled this trunk with family clothes and belongings, eventually making her way from China to New York City to join her husband, Li B. Locke. They lived above a store that they owned on 32 Mott Street, a store that remained a pillar of New York's Chinatown 
for 112 years. This is actually a twofer. We feature here a photo of the activist Yuri Kuchiyama, who is picketing alongside striking restaurant workers. The photo was taken by the legendary photojournalist Corky Lee. Two sets of objects in the collection bring us to the American Ballet Theater, which was founded here in New York City in 1939. For several decades, ABT's costume and wardrobe mistress was Mei Ishimoto. Her sewing kit and drawings and examples of her designs are part of the collection. And going from behind the scenes to on the stage, the pancaked shoes of Stella Abrera are also part of the collection. Abrera joined the American Ballet Theater in 1996. In 2015, she was named principal dancer, the first Filipina and Asian American to be named for that position. And finally, we have here also at the National Portrait Gallery a 1967 photo of Joe Batan. Born Batan Nitolano in 1942, of Filipino and African-American heritage, Joe grew up in Spanish Harlem and became one of the defining voices of Latin Boogaloo in the late 1960s, an electric U.S. genre that straddled Caribbean rhythms and American soul music. At the time that this photo was taken, Joe was 25 years old. He's seated in the middle while his bandmates surround him. The young fellows in his first band were all teenagers. He's still performing. So at this point, what I'd love to do is to turn things over to my two colleagues uh, who will take some deeper dives into their contributions to the book. We'll start with Grace. Thanks so much, Theo, yeah. for inviting me. And, and thank you to our very generous um, hosts, um, the Asian American Asian Research Institute, and to all of you who are spending um, your Friday evening um, with us. It's, it's, it's really um, wonderful. So I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about the entry I did, um, on uh, which you see here on the screen to, to my left. Emerging from a thicket of verdant bamboo, a large white and black striped cat crouches expectantly by a stream that meanders along the bottom of the composition. The arching and sloping black stripes are landscapes onto themselves. The dynamic rhythm of the interlocking bands of black lines recall the mountainous topography, one that is reminiscent of the landscape of Hiroshima where the artist Jimimir Kitani spent his childhood. This geographic grounding is underscored by the work's title, Cat in the Bamboo, Hiroshima, and it's the object that I had um, the real pleasure of thinking with and writing about uh, for the APA 101 publication. Uh, born in 1920 in Sacramento, California to Issei, that is first generation immigrant parents, Miri Kitani moved to Hiroshima, um, Japan as a young child. And he spent, uh, he was part of a generation of Japanese Americans known as Kibei, that is those who were born um, in the United States, uh, but primarily educated in Japan. Um, Miri Kitani took up painting at the age of five and you hear you see him as a very young man um, practicing his uh, um, painting in the Nihonga style. Um, at 18, he returned to the United States to live in Seattle with his sister, Kazuko. Um, part of this was to, in an effort to continue to pursue his career as an artist, but it was also to escape the intensifying militarism of Japan. Executive Order 9066 separated Miri Kitani from his sister and forced them into different concentration camps. While incarcerated at California's Tuli Lake, Miri Kitani um, 
found ways to continue to make and teach art. And, and here the work I'm showing um, is one that he made while incarcerated. And it really, you can see, reflects his training as a Nihonga painter. That, that's, that is, um, as I'm sure many of you know, but for those of you who don't, is a painting school that evolved in the late 19th century in Japan. And it really aimed to both revive and maintain East Asian painting traditions. In 1943, the War Relocation Authority and the War Department required uh, those incarcerated in the internment camps throughout the United States uh, to complete what was informally known as a loyalty questionnaire. Those considered by the federal government to be disloyal were sent to Tule Lake, which became a segregation center to seclude the, you know, quote unquote, disloyal. Miri Kitani, along with thousands of other people, uh, renounced their U.S. citizenship in what for some was maybe an act of refusal or protest or out of frustration. At the end of the war, Miri Kitani... Um, Excuse me, Miri Kitani and, and many others, hundreds of others, were held without charge, first in Tule Lake and then in a Department of Justice INS camp in Crystal City, Texas. Uh, by 1946, Miri Kitani was transferred to Seabrook Farms, um, which was a frozen food manufacturing plant not too far from here in New York. And it, the Seabrook Farms was located in Bridgeton, New Jersey. Um, at Seabrook, uh, he and other so-called um, renunciants were on this, like, relax, relax, quote-unquote, internment uh, incarceration where they worked a 12-hour night shift six days a week sorting vegetables on an assembly line. In 1947, a lawyer named Wayne Collins was actually able to secure their release and Collins was a lawyer who worked assiduously for another decade to fully restore the citizenship rights of the so-called renunciants, but Miri Kitani actually didn't realize that his citizenship had been restored until decades later. Um, in the years that followed his incarceration, he explored his traumatic experience through his art, picturing scenes of the prison camps as disquietly vacant, human presence inscribed onto the landscape through ghosted barracks and tombstones. Miri Kitani's work engages the way that violence enacted by the United States government domestically <coughs> spirals outward. Many of his other works depict the catastrophic consequences of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And here I think it's really extraordinary um, to see that the connections Miri Kitani's work helps us understand between U.S. empire and domestic policy continue to be deeply resonant and relevant as academics center this sort of analysis and scholarly research. And here I'm thinking of the, the work by scholars like uh, Stuart Schrader, whose pathbreaking book, Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, really examines and argues for the way um, in which the intertwined relationships between how the United States projected its military and imperial uh, power overseas through police training and technical assistance has shaped and reinforced policing domestically. Between, 1980s, uh, between the 1980s and 2001, Miri Kitani experienced significant periods of homelessness, but he never stopped uh, making, selling, and teaching art. And his works are these really 
beautiful and powerful records of resilience, places where one can imagine alternative narratives and identities. Cats are a reoccurring theme in the artist's extensive oeuvre, and part of my interest in selecting this particular um, work, this one in particular, but I'll go back to the cats because they're just so delightful to look at, um, uh, was that you know, the work uh, that, I, uh, that is in the catalog um, really illuminates the artist's long-standing commitment to the subject, but also because I think Cats in the Bamboo really forestalls the image of atomic horror that are so often associated with the city and instead presents a very intimate memory of place. And I think this is one of the great strengths of the APA 101 collection um, is that Theo took such care to reveal the multiplicity and polyvocality of cultural, historic, and artistic impulses that comprise the capacious nature of Asian American and diasporic stories. And I think Miri Kitani's Cats in the Bamboo allowed me to share a perhaps unexpected side of a once incarcerated Japanese American artist. And here at the bottom, which you can see blown up, and I'm sorry, it's a little pixelated from my, my phone photography, um, is the way Miri Kitani signed many of his works. And uh, if you can't read the Japanese, which I needed my aunt to help me <laughs> translate this, um, Amiri Kitani is noting in his signature um, his membership in the prestigious Japan Art Institute, and he's also placing his work within a genealogy of Japanese art. So he's choosing to identify himself through the lineage of his teachers, um, the painters Kowai Gukuro and Kimura Busan, you know, evidencing his ongoing and abiding connection to people and place. And this project was a really um, personal and poignant one, one of the most uh, personal projects I think I've worked on at the Smithsonian. Um, like Mirikitani's family, my family was forcibly separated and incarcerated at Topaz and Abraham. And I imagine that, like me, many readers of the APA 101 collection will also find stories that deeply echo their own histories. But this collection is um, more than just those moments of resonant representation. The histories of Asian American and diasporic peoples open spaces for critical interrogation. In my own field of art history, the stories of Asian American and diasporic artists unsettle those tidy narratives of US American art, which is often characterized as a sweeping one, dominated by a few supposedly great artistic geniuses who are almost always white and almost these men that unfold from the seductive landscapes of Albert Bierstadt to the sublime color fields of Barnett Newman. These are the stories that I learned in college and graduate school and the ones I'm always trying to unlearn. And my abiding companions in this work have been, uh, even though I don't know them, <laughs> through their scholarship, Lisa Lowe, Ann Chang, Gary Okihiro, Sarita C, and artists like Candice Lynn and Huma Baba and Rena Banerjee. And, and these artists and scholars have helped me understand that absent a deep and layered study of our history, we can't begin to understand the stories of American or global capitalism, the nature of US imperialism and militarism, or how the logics of democracy, citizenship, and immigration, and racialization function in the United States. 
Mary Kitani's work for me is really an invitation to orient or perhaps reorient the way I inhabit my own relationship to U.S. American art history through different sites, spaces, and temporalities. And, and for me, that language of orientation and reorientation is, a, is really self-consciously evoking the language of the, the brilliant scholar activist Sarah Ahmed. Miri Kitani's work, um, but also this larger book project, is a call to interrogate those discrepancies be between the canonical narratives we've inherited and the material realities that those histories sometimes elide and elude. Centering the stories of art produced in what is now the United States around works by Asian American and diasporic artists like Jimmy Miri Kitani and the methodological insights of Asian American studies allow us to tell different stories marked by fragmentation and imperial violence, loss, resilience, refusal, and survival. Miri Kitani's works about the dehumanizing experience of incarceration and atomic bombings in Japan are insistent reminders that these histories cannot exist at the margins of our collective and national narratives. And these are not just Asian American stories. His work and the dense and delicate histories they gesture towards are deeply imbricated with the larger histories of US empire, white supremacy, and the ongoing fight for racial justice. And when I think about the arc of Miri Kitani's career, um, I'm reminded that just a few years after um, that Nihonga-style painting of Tuli Lake that I showed many slides ago, uh, this artist whose work you see on the screen, Marian Perkins, is sculpting this incredible work called Skywatcher, which he intended, although never fully realized, as a portable monument um, that would reckon with the atrocities of Hiroshima and act as a, a warning against future nuclear annihilation while simultaneously invoking um, connections to systems of oppression in the U.S., particularly those experienced by black communities. Perkins was part of a black left in the United States that understood that stood in solidarity with the Japanese victims of the bomb and saw the bombings as part of a larger regime of white supremacy practiced at home and abroad. As the poet Langston Hughes, who was also connected to this intellectual milieu, argued in the Chicago Defender in 1945, quote, how come we did not try them, the atomic bombs, on Germany? They uh, did not, uh, they just did not want to use them on white folks. In many ways, I think this kind of intersectional analysis and solidarity anticipates the acts of interracial coalition building of Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama, who Theo showed a few slides ago. Um, and so what I hope in this brief diversion um, I hope it illustrates that the stories of Jimmy Mary Kitani and the others gathered so carefully in the collection, um, the larger collection, uh, are deeply connected to the larger complexities, contradictions, and conflicts that reside at the heart of the stories of American art and history. And I just want to give a plug to my wonderful colleague and friend who, if you we're compelled by these Jimmy Mary Kitani works. I hope you will stay tuned to see her show, which will open um, in 2026 at the Spencer Art Museum, and it's curated by Maki Kaneko and Chris uh, Ikrams, um, who's the curator at the Spencer. So stay tuned for that. More, more scholarship on Jimmy Mary Kitani to come. <laughs> Thank you. And now I'll hand it over to my colleague, Saisha. I'll continue the thanks. Thank you, Theo, <laughs> for inviting us, and um, Grace for that incredible, um, incredible deep dive, and 
expansionist view of um, how these these intersections um, help us understand so much about the world and all the people who contribute to what we come to understand to be American history. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different approach in looking at my um, two entries with more maybe of the object-based um, engagement and really focusing on the works and the experiences of them. Um, but one thing I, I think is interesting is the artist um, Namjoon Peck and his electronic superhighway, Continental U.S., Alaska, and Hawaii, that um, was the basis for my entry, one of my two entries, um, is that we really see a, a shift and a moment where the two artists I'll be talking about, Namjoon Pak and Christine Sun Kim, operate in a space where they are both Asian American and have other intersecting identities and actually are not always positioned in that way. That's not always the primary lens through which their work is, is seen. And so they have more of this space often to represent as global nomads or intersecting with um, with their longer journeys. And so I think it's interesting that they're included in this APA 101 book, um, both be, like, with that knowledge and with that lens, but also in a way that allows it to expand to include um, the media art history and the um, analysis of the objects that, um, that these entries bring. Um, so one thing I wanted to say before diving too much into the object, though, is that um, one of the things that I think is, you know, a shift as well from Grace's point of the sweep of American history, as we come to understand it, is how wonderfully central Namjoon Pak is understood to be in the way that we present American art at SAM. Um, this piece uh, is in the center of our contemporary art galleries and has been since we reopened in 2007. And, um, and it was a gift from the artist to the museum. So there was a longstanding relationship and, and awareness that we had supported his work for a while. And when he passed away in 2006, uh, the entireties of his artist studio were gifted to the museum, and um, and that is the basis for the Namjoon Pak archives, which have an enormous amount of resources. So for those of you in the room or in the internet who are interested in this artist or his milieu, um, please come research there at, at SAM. We have this incredible resource um, to understand his life, which did you know, have a journey from uh, Seoul, Korea, to studying in Japan, to studying in Germany, to being based here in New York um, for the majority of his career. Um, so that long relationship then, and that long presence in New York means that he's central to the American art story, understood to be, understood to be a figure that um, belongs in the American um, story, and that his, um, his willingness to think about technologies and media as new tools for artists to use, artists in, in, in any capacity from anywhere, um, was groundbreaking and shifted um, the possibilities for so many. But I think within the context of the APA project, it's worth thinking about the value that he saw in taking up media specifically because of its translation and because of its international reach and because the way that cultures come to understand each other through media is important when you yourself have experienced moving between different cultural um, positionalities. Um, so in terms of um, this work, oh, my notes are... 
coming up. Um, so <laughs> there we go. So um, I wanted to talk about uh, just the way that this work is experienced in the gallery for a second. Um, the work is, as you can see, a giant map of the United States. It is made up of 366 uh, television sets that are bounded by neon um, tubing that take up the shapes of the 50 states as we recognize them. There's also on the wall Alaska and Hawaii, which you can't see in this image. Um, and then what you realize as you stand in front of it is within each of these um, neon-bounded states, each of the sets of televisions are playing different channels of media. So there's 50 different sources of media, and those represent different edits um, made by the artist of what he, as a um, Korean-born, Japanese, and German-educated, and New York-based artists associated with each of these states. So in some cases, that's um, artist-edited montages of pop culture and personal references. So for example, you can kind of see here is an image of a woman, Charlotte Mormon, who was his longtime partner from Arkansas. That is spliced together with a bunch of Bill and Hillary Clinton footage, because those are the three things he knew were from Arkansas. <laughs> um, California is full of ones and zeros and people working out. Um, Iowa has the is the primary state, so it's where we pick presidential candidates, so there's just a kaleidoscopic montage of presidential candidates. Other states, really interestingly, he's just appropriated whole sections of classical movie musical. So The Wizard of Oz takes up Kansas, Meet Me in St. Louis is in Missouri, and Showboat, which is not as well known, is, um, is down here. Um, the other thing that shows up, though, that's very interesting is um, selections of existing documentaries. So um, over there in, um, in Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama, uh, not Birmingham, in Alabama, you can see um, a documentary on the Montgomery bus boycott that includes excerpts of um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King speaking. And then there's one other very interesting detail um, in this work. Uh, in the non-state that is Washington, D.C., there is a um, closed-circuit TV camera. So this means there's a camera pointing out into the gallery, capturing who's in front of the work at that very moment, and then playing it back through this very tiny monitor. Um, so that situates you geographically, but also conceptually in this work. As an audience member um, and a consumer of television imagery in general, you are a representative of the millions of people who wonder how they fit into this mosaic. Your presence basically affirms that this isn't just a map, but it's a portrait of a nation that's simultaneously, you know, struggling with the idea of individualism, regionalism, and somehow unity. How do we make up a nation out of all these clashing colors and all of this disparate content? Interestingly, this work, which is so evocative of the exuberance around the burgeoning internet from the mid-1990s, this is from 95, stems from an earlier Puck um, contribution to the 1993 Venice Biennale. And there he represented, interestingly enough, Germany. And he showed a grid-like video wall titled Electronic Superhighway as well. And at that moment, took the opportunity to remind the world that um, Bill Clinton had stole his idea. So um, in 1992, Bill Clinton is is campaigning, and he 
is lauding the idea of an information superhighway. And Pac wanted to make sure that people knew that he had actually urged investment in an electronic superhighway, which he thought would be made possible by, and this is a quote, broadband communication network, um, which now sounds very familiar. Um, and that was in a, a document he put together in 1974. This isn't surprising that he would be so at the fore of imagining art and technology's co-evolution um, because by 1963 he was working with televisions and imagining them as tools for artist innovation. Um, he then goes on to create some of the earliest experimental videos and interactive closed circuit installations and video synthesizers. Um, and so as it happens, um, these installations um, and the woman Charlotte Mormon were the focus of my dissertation done at the Graduate Center CUNY. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and um, one of the things I really think is interesting when you dive deeper into this work and into Nam Chun Pak's career and how it's been understood is that there's often this idea that as an early adopter of technology, he's a cheerleader of it. And having spent a lot of time reading his writings and thinking about it, I think there's an overstatement of a lot of the optimism and a real underplaying of a lot of what he says about concerns about technology. And so this work, though it has all that exuberance, that early um, internet excitement about being connected and all the ways that it could connect us, I think it also brings that complexity. So at the very moment that our electronic superhighway map debuted in New York at Holly Solomon Gallery in 95, um, he had another show in Cincinnati titled also Electronic Superhighway, which focused on the human technology hybrids who might populate the future cyber towns along this route. So if post-World War II America had been defined by high TV diets, Couch Potato, seen here, um, acknowledges that in an internet-connected America, having the world at one's fingertips might mean never leaving the house at all. And then at the center of this cyber town was somebody named Global Encoder. And this, he talked about as signaling both how it could connect the world, but also according to Pak, how one, per, that centralization of power that comes from being able to control information in one spot. So he's looking to a future in which, you know, the, the people that we, can name that I won't because we're on the internet, um, you know, control so much information by being these centralizing forces. At the same time, as somebody who had traveled around the world, we can think about all the ways in which he's excited about being able to be connected globally and not um, have these sort of long distance separations or miscommunications that come from cultural misunderstanding. So as Puck Cyberstown denizens are, like America, easy to render in stereotypes, but also perhaps for that reason, sometimes hard to see with nuance. And the same can be said for our electronic superhighway, which like the country it represents, is actually full of provocative contradictions that require getting beyond the surface attractions to tease out. For example, when this work was acquired, the label suggested that the internet and 24-hour broadcast would homogenize what was once a more diverse nation. But could we also say that the mass media cliches highlighted here promote reductive ideas of difference across state lines and perpetuate such divisions by shaping individual and regional identities? And certainly from um, Nanjun Peck's position, you know, not knowing a lot that the only way he understood some of these places was entirely through their media cliches. 
Um, and now we might have a healthy, more informed debate about whether the internet has encouraged more national agreement and homogenization or fractured us further. And what do we make of Pak's desire for the Montgomery bus boycott documentary, which I pointed out earlier, um, to be the dominant soundtrack? So this is the only section where you can hear the sound on both sides of the map. In other sections, like the movie musicals, the sound is only coming out of the televisions in front of you. Um, so to me, this is interesting. This inflects this vision of the highway, this vision of a connected um, a statewide inter, you know, interstate highway system with the ideals of um, Martin Luther King or the dismay of Malcolm X and raises the notable reality that the ability to get on the road and travel with the equal assurance of liberty and safety has never quite been achieved. So we have this glowing idea of the country, but how does it actually um, step into or realize those ideals? And then very timely for our moment um, are the questions raised by the closed circuit camera, which often inspires playful interactivity in the gallery. Um, but it also implicates us. Are we empowered agents who can intervene in the vision of America? Or are we surveyed subjects unable to see our world without being seen? As such, Paxberg hints at the future surveillance state that he did not yet live in, but that we do now, um, that we can argue, you know, where we're actively, willingly participants, self-surveying ourselves with smartphones, that we know track our movements, posting selfies with location information to tell where we've been, and all for the possibility of being seen. We share this so we have a sense of being seen and belonging and being reflected in a broader cultural picture. Um, it doesn't, whoop. <laughs> um, so, um, so just to close, one of the things that I think is um, <coughs> is really powerful about Namjoon Pak's work, and I hope I gave a sense of here, is that while there very often is a real pleasure, visual pleasure, and a sense that you can enter in so many different ways and that it's really attractive and brings people in, that these other layers kind of come through. And I was thinking about um, something that Namjoon said repeatedly through in interviews in his life was that he was um, an artist from a poor country. Um, Korea at the time was very poor. Um, and so he had to be entertaining. Um, but I think what's interesting, he also wanted to be a globally known artist and he wanted to have a huge impact on culture and the conversations we would have. So he knew that he had to be entertaining, but he also knew that if you wanted to have staying power, you had to have this level of complexity. And so that's what we see in the work and, and all the ways that it continues to resonate and have meaning. Um, so that was a quite an in, in uh, a deep read. A lot of uh, a lot of the thinking I've had around that piece. Um, more recently, um, we acquired a work by Christine Sun Kim called "The Star Spangled Banner Third Verse," and I was so happy that Theo um, 
asked for this to be part of the collection because it was something that had sort of just come in. So I've had less time thinking um, alongside it. Um, and Christine's work is, you know, she's a younger artist, so it's emergent um, and but very exciting to spend time with. And I have had the opportunity already to show these works. Um, all four of the works on screen are by Christine Sun Kim and in part and are part of Sam's collection. Um, they were featured in a recent exhibition called Musical Thinking, New Video Art and Sonic Strategies. Um, but the work that I will be talking about is, um, is not a video, um, but it is very much connected to her thinking about music. Um, and the way that scores and um, patriotic songs continue to um, carry meanings um, taken from their histories that we that we continue to share and inviting a kind of closer examination of what that might mean. So as you can see um, on the screen, we have these two scores. Um, the entry focuses on the Star Spangled Banner, and I'll talk about that mostly, but they, um, they do make a really beautiful pair. Um, these are charcoal scores charcoal scores um, and you can see the kind of typical lines of a musical score and little notes that indicate you know sort of rhythmic um, quality but then you also have um, kind of a array of words that spread around the, the page that become the primary um, composition um, and these were um, scores that she made um, that are very large. I wanted to kind of put a, one of my favorite images from this show, um, but also to give you a sense of scale. So these, these scores are about five feet um, square. And so I think about them as ways that she's physically demanding that you confront and have a personal relationship and maybe ask yourself about your personal relationship to these um, patriotic songs and specifically in the Star Spangled Banner's case, your relationship to the national anthem, which um, as we know has continued to be a very live conversation. And so these were, um, these were pieces that she made after she had been actually asked to um, be the American Sign Language interpreter um, during the Super Bowl in 2020. So she didn't make these um, the drawings at this scale to prepare for that, but she did make similar um, kind of um, scores and then built on that through research to create these larger pieces. Um, but after she performed, um, she then published a, an op-ed in the New York Times titled, I performed at the Super Bowl, you might have missed me. Um, and this was a very pointed retort to the fact that if you were going to try to be delivering accessibility through an ASL performer for deaf audiences like herself, um, cutting away, visually cutting away from the ASL performer denies that very um, that accessibility entirely. And so the fact that the major networks cut away and didn't show her for more than a couple seconds, you know, is a parallel, and she starts to point this out, a parallel to some of the ways that this, you know, there is the talk of equality or the talk of accessibility or the talk of inclusion, um, but that we often have to reconcile that with the realities on the ground. So in this quote, she says, as a child of immigrants, a grandchild of refugees, a deaf woman of color, an artist, and a mother, I was proud to perform the national anthem to express my patriotism and honor the country that its core believes in equal rights for all citizens, including those with disabilities. And then she goes on to talk about 
um, some of the failures um, and some of the gaps between um, between that supposed belief or the statements of those values and then some of what does happen um, in the world today. And so then she links um, her own work with, um, with refusals to um, stand for the national anthem, with um, solidarity with Black Lives Matter and Black Deaf Lives Mattering and disability rights and social justice rights all kind of coming together as spaces where we can more further realize um, some of these promises if we choose to do so. Um, and so then when she goes back to work on um, just another great um, photo of her um, in this performance. So when she goes back to work on this series of drawings that come out of this, um, the Star Spangled Banner that we acquired is specifically called Star Spangled Banner, the third verse. And the third verse is one that is almost never sung. It's not really part of the standard that's taught, but it is the verse in which the lyricist Francis Scott Keyes really tips his hand and shows that as a slaveholder, he's imagining the victory of the of that's being celebrated in this song as one that includes um, as he said there'll be no refuge could save the hireling and the slave from the terrors of flight or the gloom of the grave so really imagining that the the triumph of the United States is one um, over attempts at freedom and liberty um, enacted by by the slaves who joined the British um, and so she draws this out by focusing on this verse and then vo focusing on those words, hireling, slave, gloom, grave, repeat coming down the sides of this drawing. Um, and, um, and then she includes and asks that be included an artist statement linking um, disability rights, Black Lives Matter, and some of the counter positions that are struggling to um, point out the gaps, as I said, and then ask these provocative questions about what does it mean for this to still be embedded in our national history and our patriotic symbols, and do we want to rethink that? Are we, are, have we had enough time to think about what it means when you bring those legacies along um, in, in our... Um, in our national uh, national symbols. Um, so just a little bit about Kim, because I kind of backed into this. <laughs> um, she was born in Orange County in California in 1980, um, and her hearing parents had recently arrived from South Korea, and so they learned to sign along with spoken English as part of building their life in the United States. Um, and then in 1990, she experienced the impact of the Americans with Disabilities Act as captions in mainstream films and TV and ASL services became more widely available. Available. Now she's a self-described sound artist and she approaches the entire field of sound as one that's conceptual and psychological and social and structures spaces and engagement. Um, so rather than a single medium, she's really focused on the translation between systems. And I think this is also very interesting to think about alongside Namjoon Pak, where you have these different artists who've moved in, you know, across um, lines of language and are thinking about language, um, not just in terms of the languages that they have to learn to navigate different parts of their world, but as systems that aren't sort of completely um, transparent or tr um, so that things change, how you understand things, how you feel things changes across those lines. Um, and I should say, interestingly now, she lives in Berlin, um, so she's gone the other way. <laughs> and, um, and I think what's great about 
rethinking how we present American art is having space for people who move in different directions and that those identities layer and become um, multiple and not that they kind of create boundaries and keep um, keep them out of of how we understand who's contributing to American art and conversations. Um, and so with that, I will end also on an invitation. So if you happen to be able to get to D.C. <laughs> um, in September, we have another... Um, Oh, I meant to say. So the score was um, was supported with um, support from the Asian American Pacific Center at Smithsonian, um, and this performance, which will happen in September, is also one that um, that we've gotten support from APAC from. Um, so she'll be performing a lecture performance called Five Finger Discount History, um, which has been done before in 2018, but this will be sort of a re reenactment and update, and we're so excited. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Just in terms of the uh, production itself, um, how many objects did you actually collect all together before you narrowed it down to one? Uh, the initial number was about 1,200 that were surveyed, and and a lot of that had to made to kind of think about how many of them were um, uh, either overlapping directly in terms of content, um, but 1,200 became essentially. 200, 260, um, and then down to a, a more difficult number of 100, 101. Um, and so what's great about it is that, you know, it's it's really not about 101 objects. I mean, that's just kind of a, a device. <laughs> the idea here is really uh, to start thinking about how these objects speak to each other, how they speak to certain gaps, um, how we can think about the Smithsonian as a really big place that tries to steward um, millions of objects and documents. Um, and to and, and to encourage the thinking um, in in so many of these units about what else uh, remains to be uh, interpreted and, and reinterpreted. So uh, it was a, a fun exercise, but also something that I think had been needed for some time. And how did you go about seeking the different contributors? Well, yeah, it was great. I mean, I didn't know these two folks initially, but I, I think what happened is that um, you know at the Smithsonian. Um, it is a, a community of scholars that, um, uh, that I've benefited from in terms of uh, snowball technique and, and reaching out to different colleagues who know other colleagues um, and, um, and, and developing knowledge that way. I mean, there really are, a, a, there, there's a small core of folks that are, are very much invested in Asian American histories, Pacific Islander histories. Uh, it doesn't take that long to try to find uh, many folks. Um, and um, and there was actually a, a key uh, person uh, at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, Melissa Ho, who helped kind of bring together a lot of folks on the visual art side. So I was able to reach out uh, to um, to other colleagues through her. Um, but I had other contacts in in different locations at um, uh, Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage, um, and uh, the National Museum of Natural History, as well, because there are really thousands of objects. I, kind of technically millions, really, of objects that pertain to Asian, Asian Pacific American, Pacific Islander, Oceanic history. And you said you spent around 18 months uh, analyzing all this? Well, yeah, I, I would say I probably spent about 18 months actively writing the parts of the book that I wrote. Um, and then uh, that was in addition to working with folks like Saish and Grace uh, on their individual entries as well. But more probably 
more like two or three years because it was actually the project started during the pandemic and and so this was something that was undertaken with a, a group of people small group of folks at the Asian Pacific American Center and they kind of slowly made its way out um, the museum the entire Smithsonian had shut down to the public which was a rare occurrence but a lot of our own internal work really needed to continue and that was either through collecting efforts or um, research and and I thought well one way to, to maybe continue some of this work was to uh, think about a publication project uh, that we could all kind of still have our hands in uh, because the at that point you know people were still um, uh, it, it, you know a lot of us were in the dark about what was going to be coming next and I think um, especially for classrooms around the country there were many teachers who were looking for educational resources uh, online and uh, there were certain uh, products that that we could use digitally in-house uh, to help to convey certain individual lessons I mean most of these objects are already online with an individual URL and a teacher could could uh, incorporate these individual objects into lesson plans well, just a personal observation yeah. I was uh, yeah, I was surprised when I first, first saw one of your parks that artwork art when I went to the Smithsonian group there the first time back in 2011. So it was amazing to look at. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. What were you surprised about? The color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a stunner. It really is. And um, we just renovated our third floor where we have our modern contemporary gallery. So if you haven't been in a while, I really invite people to come visit. We've given the piece a little bit more space. So it has a little bit more of breathing room, more open sight lines. But the other real special thing for me that the reinstallation allowed is we've moved the walls out on either side and that means we can include one of his earliest works um, Zen for TV which is from 1963 from that show I showed a picture of and that really like is so different it's this very early minimalist approach and so he becomes maximalist and so what is that journey well we have now space to show some of the archival materials that can help tell different parts of the story so that he's not just one thing he's not just that one icon which I love that people love but also that you can learn more and sort of jump off from there to understand other parts of his practice and I think that's sort of nice about these these entries that Saisha and I were able to highlight is, is one really looks at this canonical work, I think, in our collection, but the work of Jimmy Miyakitani is, is not, I mean, we have three works on paper, which makes it hard to show because of conservation concerns, but he's not an artist that has really, you know, there are not a lot of people writing dissertations mm -hmm. about his work, and so what was a real joy was to see a different side of our collection um, through this project and, and have just a little more information out there. And I think the scholarship of Maki Kaneko, who's a professor at um, the University of Kansas, I think Kansas, sorry Maki if I got that affiliation <laughs> wrong, um, is really extraordinary because she's one of the very few people writing um, about this. There was a really important documentary called The Cats of Jimmy Miyakitani, which I highly recommend that came out while the artist was still alive about him and this, so there's a lot of his voice and it's tremendously moving but this book was a real opportunity to, to, to see parts of Sam's collection that really haven't gotten a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. also. I just want to say that I think that the nomenclature of the title of the book 
is really is interesting because usually 101, like English 101, is a kind of a primer. Mm -hmm. But it, but your goal, <coughs> excuse me, in, in in getting all these objects to be focused on is as a, at the at the base a really uh, an educational tool. So there's a kind of pedagogical connection with it, and especially with what you're saying, Grace, like lesser known practitioners, artists, uh, Asian Americans, which balance that on the bookend with, let's say, Samuneguchi or Namjoon Pai, mm -hmm. who would not have been classified. I think you mentioned that earlier, Sasha, that they would they would have seen they would have been seen as American artists who happen to be. Mm -hmm. But in your in and so their practice has been more broad, and then to actually shine a light on the fact that they are of this cultural background mm -hmm. is like a double um, achievement of this book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the original title was in in my mind was always going to be APA One Hundred One, just because I wanted to see this book, uh, the cover of it from like 30 feet away. Yeah. And um, I had in mind as well that the outline of the letters would, would feature the images of, of what would you see inside. And so for the most part, that's kind of what you see. Um, and and our publishers, you know, know a lot more about titles than I do in terms of SEOs and, and, uh, and how to find a book on the internet. So they, they came up with a much longer description. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the idea of APA 101 was specifically about um, calling, calling to mind that that kind of uh, classroom title um, or a classroom lecture, um, and and then also it forces you to to make some considerations about what what objects to include. Um, but that's always been part of the the goal is to think about this as a, a classroom tool, um, at, but also as a kind of intervention, a specific kind of statement um, that you can start in a number of different places. Uh, when teaching Asian American and Pacific Islander histories, and why shouldn't you encounter Isamu Noguchi? Why shouldn't you encounter Namjoon Pike or um, uh, or Jimmy Maricatani uh, or Lucille Tanasis as well? <laughs> why do you, Why do you have to wait until the? Well, I mean that's why it's interesting <laughs> that you called me because I would never assume that a poster, which is not a one-off, right? It's yep. in multitudes. It's in production. Happens to be at the Cooper Hewitt. But that you singled it out, and I think that's probably, you know, just, I mean, I like the acknowledgement of that, yeah. so thank you for bringing that in. But I just wanted to say, as a book designer, <laughs> I like the symmetry of 101. <laughs> Me too. You know, and also the fact that, you know, it's not a round number. 100 is so normal, yeah. but 101 has other lay has other repercussions, so I guess. True. Well, I grew up near the one. I grew up near the one in California, so I, I had that too. Um, that's what's in the zeros yeah, right. and ones in California. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but for our book design, we have Christina Newhart to thank uh, in in California, and so there's a lot of really great energy inside the book um, through and through. So the content, uh, but also the the way that it was assembled, um, and the way that it was, I think, properly laid out, so that way you could see uh, an object, um, encounter some text, uh, but you really need to physically have the book I think to to uh, get the full the full gravity the full measure of what's um, of what's been fully contributed but thanks again Lucille it's great to have I you like in the there. cover I mean you could see it 30 feet away yeah. oh, okay very yeah. good all right you got it I have a question then so what what is available digitally 
um, or is it or is it now that it exists as a physical um, something that you imagine teaching from the book? Yeah, there is there is a digital version, mm-hmm. uh, and I've I've actually looked through it, and uh, I don't enjoy it as much. Mm-hmm. It, it, the Love when you op- <laughs> the layout of it is really quite shocking. So I w- I would steer people away okay. from that uh, <laughs> unless you're getting like a PDF yeah. where you could see yeah. the proper layout mm-hmm. of it. Um, it's just that the EPUB version uh, is. I mean, if you need the text, then get it for the text. But really, the layout is Christina Newhart's kind yeah. of brilliance. To be able to see these things spatially uh, arranged is, I think that's how it was meant to be done. And so, um, at least get the PDF version. Well, I, I teach both print and, and, and digital. And one, yeah. of my, one of my projects is to have a student extract information from an analog version and because the platform is totally different, and, yeah. and your vehicle, it's not multi-page. You're not, you, there's no pacing, yep. and it's scrolling, yeah, yeah. vertical. You know, not quite horizontal, which is what we do with pagination. So there are ways to make the strength of a digital manifestation equally as good as the print. <laughs> it's, it's just a different approach. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> is there a Map included in the publication that shows where the different objects are. Okay. No, okay. there is not a map. <laughs> yeah. So how does one know where to look for it? Well, not everything is on display um, oh. that that's listed in the book, and that's you know when you think I I put up on uh, the one of the earlier slides, there's something like 175 million objects under the care of the Smithsonian, and really only a, a tiny tiny fraction either at SAM or where I work at, at in the uh, National Museum of American History, only a tiny fraction of objects are actually on display. And even for those that are on display, um, our conservators make sure that they uh, are rotated uh, because of exposure to light, air, and moisture. We want to be able to, to preserve these objects in, in perpetuity. Um, so even things that are on display have to be rotated out and, uh, and given a bit of a rest. <laughs> so um, at least with this book, um, it would be very difficult to try to, um, uh, to do a, a, a treasure map and, and uh, to do a scavenger hunt uh, at the Smithsonian. <laughs> you could try it, but I, I think you'd, you'd be running into storage rooms up on the <laughs> restricted floors. Yeah, I was just going to say that's one of the nice things about a book like this is it gives a kind of permanent visibility and real platform for some of these more like you know light sensitive works, lesser known artists, um, but also objects that might not speak quite as clearly in a case or but that have these incredible histories. I was so struck. We're talking about artworks, um, but much of what's in the book is this material history that, you know, it is the unpacking of those stories and what it is that they tell, what they shed light on, Mm -hmm. all the things that they open up to. That really is a a hugely powerful tool of thinking about object-based history telling. Um, And that's quite different than, you know, like the visual analysis that I can do of a Nam Jun Pak. (laughs) But, like very compelling and maybe doesn't strike you in a gallery because it's not neon, but it still has this right, richness. Right, right, right. right. Um, and that a book is a really good place to do that work. Yeah, yeah. I highlighted the uh, the humble asparagus knife that was written by <laughs> written about by my colleague Sam Vong. Uh, and so there, you know, there were real discussions about how how best to present a humble asparagus knife. And yet, there are endless stories uh, in labor history. Uh, about the significance of who's wielding the knife, uh, what were their particular desires, what were their needs, how were they unmet as workers. So you can go down in, incredible amounts of data 
uh, with something as humble as, as an asparagus knife. And so it, you know, this book tries to capture and, and evoke um, uh, the, the drama of a lot of different kinds of stories um, and, uh, and I hope folks uh, really get inspired by it. Can I ask, what was the run of the printing publication? Uh, I don't know. Probably about 7,000 copies, maybe maybe 10 at the most. Uh, well, I guess one final question for Grace. Uh, could you just talk about the exhibition that's coming up in the November? Yeah, yeah sure. I'd be, I'd be delighted to. So the exhibition is called um, The Shape of Power, Stories of Race in American Sculpture. And it is um, an exhibition that really thinks about the intertwined histories of sculpture made in the United States and the production of race, like the social construction of race and racism. So it positions sculpture as this site of contestation where hegemonic ideas of race are both created and challenged by looking at the history of American, or sculpture produced in the United States. The earliest work in the show is from 1793 all the way until the present. And so, you know, I think, Lucille, when you were talking about, like, the sort of um, surprise or delight that a, that a poster would be included, it was making me think about this really exclusionary history of sculpt American sculpture that we often tell. And American sculpture for a really long time, it had to be made in bronze or marble to be considered sculpture. So there's a lot of gatekeeping, right? Like material um, and like glass or hair or beads weren't considered like proper material for sculpture. Um, and so there, you know, that intersects with a lot of like class, gender, rate, like who's making the works also. Um, you know, how bodies and people are policed also intersects with the way that the history of sculpture and what was considered a sculpture was policed. So part of what the exhibition also does is tries to take a more expansive understanding of the history of sculpture and really look at how it's had this active role in um, shaping the way uh, race is understood and constructed in the United States. And so there's a lot of contemporary works on the checklist where artists are are thinking about the way that sculpture is this tool of liberation and empowerment and then it's also taking a much more critical look at works of the 19th century which really were you know pretty racist depictions of of um, indigenous people african american asian americans and so it's also you know trying to to more critically understand how the the medium was also this tool of, of oppression and domination. So I hope you all come see it. it will be What's the title of the exhibition? It's called The Shape of Power, Stories of Race in American Sculpture, and it will open um, in November of this year. Um, so a busy time in Washington, D.C. and for the nation. Um, but, but, the, but the work of the show feels really important, um, you know, <laughs> with, with all the, that's happening. That's great. Uh, and for, Saisha, uh, for the show that's happening in September, it's, it's only in-person, no It's in-person, and it is one night only. Um, so she's coming in from Berlin. We'll have a rehearsal, and then... Um, but I do believe that one of the um, one of the hopes is that this gives an opportunity... You know, performance is one of those things that exists in, in an artist practice like hers in different ways. And so I think she's really hoping that it's an opportunity to document this piece and have it better kind of live 
on and be part of her um, potentially I think part of a retrospective that, not a ret- little young for a retrospective <laughs> a mid-career survey that, um, that is coming up um, so I think that there'll be opportunities to maybe see it in video form in the future I remember seeing uh, seeing her on TV during the Super Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. You caught those 15 <laughs> seconds. Thank you to Leo, Saisha, uh, and Grace. Uh, again, for a wonderful talk, you can purchase a Smithsonian uh, APA History, Art, and Culture in 101 Objects online for $40. Links available on the talk webpage, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Uh, please purchase it and support their work. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you who are CUNY faculty, staff, or students, please join us on February 16th for our next uh, Asian American and Asian Studies Brown Bag series uh, for a presentation on Desire Paths and Han, Scholar Activism with New York City's Immigrant Food Delivery Workers by Do Jun Lee from Queens College, and the talk will be available on Zoom. Uh, with that, enjoy the rest of your Friday evenings. Have a great weekend. Happy Lunar New Year for those of you who celebrate it, and please be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks.